Welcome to the Rounds to Residency podcast, brought to you by Med School Coach. Each episode, get clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships and residency in healthcare. We interview preceptors and physician educators who will prepare you for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. Brenda Thompson is a GME expert with over 10 years of experience in residency-related accreditation, education, and other similar topics. And today, we're going to discuss some of the topics as they relate to students and our interest in gaining some maybe insider information into the mind of a residency director. Brenda, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Could you tell us a little bit more about your position and your experience and how you came to develop all of this knowledge with what residency directors are looking for and the different topics that are really of concern to your occupation? So I, like you had mentioned, have been working in GME for 10 years. So I have been mostly doing accreditation, making sure that the programs are meeting ACGME standards. And that led me into other positions such as moonlighting with the programs working as the residency administrative director, and I've also held a consulting position. So I've been like all over the country doing GME work. So through those 10 years, I've always been part of the residency recruitment season. And whether that means I'm helping the actual medical students in terms of being that administrative director and helping them, you know, scheduling the interviews. And when they finally do get to interview, I have them do the meet and greets and set up everything like that. Or I'm on the other side where I'm on that residency committee selection. So through those 10 years, I've gotten great insight of what program directors are really looking for in a candidate. And there's always a standard theme. So one thing that I appreciate about working in GME is when you're in that accrediting role, they always want the best candidates, right? Of course, because they want to make sure that their program is going to constantly be in good standing with ACGME. So they have to recruit good candidates. So I'm getting hearsay, firsthand knowledge from the program directors, the chair, the attendings, et cetera, of what they're looking for, who makes a good candidate, who doesn't. And that really is all determined on the materials that students upload on to ARIS. So of course, that's the first step that students take You have to wow them. There are certain aspects of your application, such as that personal statement that you're going to be writing, those letters of recommendations that you're going to be getting. There are certain things that programs will look for to see whether or not this is going to be a good candidate for their program. So I had worked so much with medical students where I was honestly a little bit disheartened and shocked to see, I don't think they're getting good education in med school about how to interview. I've read thousands of personal statements. Okay, I've been doing this for 10 years. I've read thousands upon thousands. And I'm reading personal statements that are truly not going in the right direction that's needed. So you're trying to have them see you being a great candidate for their program, but you're asking them, this is what I want from your program, but you're not telling them what you can add to the program. There doesn't seem to be any type of education in medical school that says, this is how you want to write a personal statement. This is what you want to put in there. This is what you want to leave out. This is what programs are looking for in a candidate. This is how you should interview. This is how you should present yourself. You should ask questions during your interview. This is what type of questions you should ask. So I've been in several different specialties and being an accreditation specialist for University of Illinois at Chicago, we had over about 70 programs for ACGME. So 
I have gotten the run of the gamut of all different specialties. And I'm trying to educate medical students that there are specifics that you really should be hitting when you're going to be entering in all your materials to ARIS. So this is kind of me giving back to the medical students, something that I think is greatly lacking. Your personal statement has to truly be 100% knockout. This is how you're going to get the attention of the program director. I'm hoping that students will listen to this and see, you know, okay, what do they know about the recruitment process? Do they know anything? And if not, that's not a good start because you can't, you know, throw darts. You have to prepare. You really have to prepare for what you're putting into your heiress. And then when you go to the interview, you have to prepare for that interview. This is your job. Most medical students never had a job before, so I find that they're lacking interviewing skills, behavior skills. Here I am trying to teach them that. That sounds great. And I think having a diversity of experiences in all the different specialties to see really what is specific to maybe this specialty, what is general for all of them is very useful information. And definitely, like you said, something that a lot of schools don't cover or might just kind of brush over very quickly. And we don't get a deep sense of what is expected of us, how to approach this. And yes, if you've never been through the gamut of applying to a lot of jobs, mundane jobs, especially when you're younger, you're not going to know what to look for. And this is basically a job application. But maybe we should take a step back real quick and just sort of explain, especially if we have maybe earlier on students here, maybe pre-med or first, second year med student that isn't quite ready to prepare for this or doesn't know all the steps yet. We get a lot of acronyms and organizations thrown at us from the LCME to the ACGME and this and that. What is the difference here? What are we really looking for? Who are we trying to impress when we're applying to these different programs? And what does the ACGME actually do? So the accreditation for graduate medical education is the accrediting body for medical residency programs and fellowship programs. When a residency goes through accreditation, they're going to have to adhere by bylaws and standards and requirements, and that's governed by ACGME. So ACGME will constantly monitor every program that they accredit. Therefore, they're monitoring every resident. So what medical students don't realize is that when you become a resident, your program is constantly going to have to monitor your progress because they're reporting it back to ACGME, such as your boards. Whenever you pass the boards that get transferred back to ACGME, there's scholarly activity that's going to be required of a resident. It is mandatory. That information gets passed back to ACGME. So when you go into residency, you as a resident have responsibilities to ACGME, just like you do to the boards. You have to meet certain criteria, such as case numbers, in order to graduate. And if you don't meet those, then ACGME tells the program you cannot graduate. You have to make up whether it's the time, whether it's the case volume, activity, whatever it is. So when you're applying into residency, you're, of course, trying to capture the attention of the program itself, the program director. But that program director's, their thought process is, I need to make sure this candidate is good in the eyes of ACGME. Because if this candidate isn't going to meet ACGME standards, then ACGME will therefore come back to my program and do an audit and possibly either put me on probation or close the program, I got to make sure that my candidate that I'm going to have as a resident is going not put me in that situation. So first and foremost, every program wants to make sure that that candidate is a good fit for them, but will also adhere to ACGME rules and standards because it is the granting accreditation agency that accredits that program. 
a resident can mess that up. It's similar to like LCME or was it CAMHP, I think, does the accreditation for some of the Caribbean schools and some of these other accreditation agencies for the medical schools themselves. ACGME does that for the residency spots within the hospitals within the universities in America. Correct. They also have international as well. But for any accredited ACGME and fellowship residency, yes. And I guess it's important to note from that mentality then, they're not just looking at what you might have done in the past, but what you can do in the future. So if you already have certain exams done that another colleague doesn't because you did it ahead of time, that's going to be a potential differentiating factor when a residency director is looking at your transcript, your CV, and all of your accomplishments compared to someone else. So in terms of that, it matters in the sense of step three. If you have step three when you interview, that's great. So if you have it, then of course you want to upload it onto ARIS, especially if you failed your step two. If you failed your step two, you definitely want to try your best to take step three because that will help you immensely. If you did fail step two, they have a very great concern if you can pass step three. Now you have to obviously pass step three when you're in residency. And again, that's one thing that gets sent back to their crediting board. Program directors are going to be really nervous if you fail. They're not going to necessarily have confidence that you're going to be able to pass that step three. Again, they don't want a site visit from ACGME because they're not graduating their residence because they're failing. It's kind of like doing your taxes. There might be some areas in the gray zone, but you don't want to risk that audit, then you're not going to take that chance. And a student that's already failed might be kind of that gray zone right now. They can spark a red flag that you know, no residency is going to want to deal with. Exactly. That's a good way to put it. They don't want to be audited. So they have to make sure that they're choosing the best candidate. So what are some other things that the directors look for? I know they look for red flags as far as being credited. And there might be some more that we haven't discussed yet, which you can bring up as well. But obviously, there are going to be other things outside of the boards, outside of just your academic standing, because they want to make sure you can fit in that environment and with your peers. Of course, there's a couple of things that I think medical students should automatically know that is a big deal. The personal statement is a big deal. The personal statement is really what says how you got into residency, what got you into medicine, who are you? This is the only opportunity you have to really express who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself so we can see your personality through this personal statement. So that's a big component. And that's the one thing that they can control. So I always recommend, you know, if you need to get somebody to edit it, if you need to get help pulling out your story of why you got into medicine or why you want that specialty, then do it. Because this is like the make or break for a program. Especially if you have spelling errors, there's no reason. There's no reason to have spelling errors. Another big thing is letters of recommendation. Now, you can somewhat control it. I mean, you know your behavior. You know your attitude when you're on that rotation. You have to make sure that you're always being seen in the best light. And when you finish that rotation, that's when you should be asking for the letters of recommendation. If you can ask for the program director's letter of recommendation or even the chair person's letter of recommendation, that's you know, even better than an attending. But you don't know what they're going to say. You can waive your rights. That's up to you. So therefore, you can have the ability to read the letter. But really, you don't know what they're going to write until they write it. So how do they see you? You have to make sure you know who you're asking. You showed yourself in a good light. 
there are certain phrases that programs will look for in these letters of recommendation, and that can make or break a resident, a resident candidate, I should say. So if there's words such as I highly recommend or I recommend with excellence, some form of communication that they're going to recommend, that's great. But we know when whoever is writing this letter of recommendation doesn't really think that they're going to be good in that specialty or even ready yet to be a residency doctor, they will not put that in there. So there are a lot of recommendations that I have read that have not had information towards, I see this person as a good specialist or I recommend this doctor. That's a huge red flag. So again, question who you're asking to get these letters of recommendations from. And then of course, there's the dean's letter. You don't also don't know what your dean is gonna write, but you know your behavior in medical school. Did you develop a relationship with your dean? Do they really know you? These are some aspects that you can control. I don't really necessarily know of any dean that would put such harsh criticism in a letter, but they do have to be honest. And if you've had a past, they do have to address that. They will address that. Own behavior, that's something that you can control. Fours are also something that's important, but I know now we have moved to pass fail. So if you are an older medical student, you know, graduated maybe two years ago and you have a score, that's going to reflect a little bit heavier on you because your test scores are going to show. Do you know students looking for a clinical rotation outside of their school's network? Students can reach out to preceptors nationwide and schedule their own rotations. You can even refer a friend and earn credit towards your future rotations. Go to findarotation.com for more information. That's Find a Rotation, your medical and healthcare clinical rotations platform. Yeah, the step one is moving to pass fail the beginning of next year, 2021. So that is something that a lot of students are going to benefit from since that is a very difficult exam and there's a lot of argument about the clinical relevance of it as well. But step two and step three are still going to be on a scored basis. So that's definitely a difference to note. And how residency directors are going to look at these differences, we're still not entirely sure. I know from many that I've talked to personally, some of them say they look at the student holistically anyway, so the scores are really not going to be a big difference for them. I think that's probably more in primary care, family medicine type of residencies, where specialty boards might be more strict on that and still require higher passing marks on the other scores. And when you go to surgery, most of my experience in surgery, and they look at that heavily. Any type of surgical, ortho, neuro, a specialty, they look at that really heavily. Now, it's usually the step one that they care about the most. But again, if you do by any chance fail step two and you pass step three, then you're okay. But if you didn't yet pass step three and it only shows a step two fail by the time you're uploading your materials onto ARIS, then you need to explain that in your personal statement. Good point. And something that I wanted to bring up with the letters of recommendation, and this may or may not occur, but depending on the preceptor and depending on the student, but many preceptors will have the student write out their letter of recommendation first. And that's not necessarily the final version, obviously, that's not what they're going to use, but they want you to maybe assess your strengths and weaknesses and write out the first draft, and then they can go through and edit it and submit it. And you won't see the edited and submitted version because that's generally hidden behind the URS application. But this means it's good for students to know these certain phrases as well, so they can add them themselves 
And then obviously, if the preceptor doesn't agree with that statement, they'll take it out before submitting. But it's something that can give students an edge if they are writing their own first draft. That's a good point. And I would absolutely recommend for those that are in that situation to have something to the effect of delighted to write this LOR or highly recommended or highest recommendation or recommend without hesitation. Those type of words should definitely be added in that LOR. And I always recommend too, if that's your situation where you're able to pre-write, make sure you talk not just about your learning abilities, but your behavioral abilities. When you go for the interview during your residency meetings, they're gonna ask you a lot of behavioral questions, not clinical questions. So if you can write something to your temperament, your patience, your attitude, your maturity, that helps you. I know something else that you brought up in our past conversation is the extracurriculars outside of education, outside of the academic framework in total, things that you like to do maybe in that location or what brings you to a specific area. What are those types of questions that a director might ask and why would they ask those things? So one of the things that we were talking about before is, you know, what does the program look for? So one of the things that they look for is what your connection is to the area. So for example, I had worked in Denver about three years ago or so, and it was the hot spot. Everybody wanted to be in Denver, but that doesn't tell the program director why you want to be in that program. So if people are moving towards the hot spot areas, that program director is going to say, well, what's the connection? Why do they want to be here? Because they're fearful that you might choose somewhere else. Most candidates will choose wherever their spouse is wherever their family is, or wherever their hometown is. So they want to see a connection. So what brought you to this location? What is your connection to want to be here? If you're in a specialty that's, you know, four years, five years long, that's a long time to be away from your family. So what is your connection? I know when we were interviewing candidates when I lived in Denver, there were some people that didn't have family. They never lived there. They never went to college there. But they wrote in their personal statement their hobbies that were connected to Denver. So if you're, you know, a semi-world champion for snowboarding or skiing, you're going to include that. And I'm just going to say, yes, that's the connection. That's why they want to be here. And if you're going to put, I love to swim, I love to, I love to fish, I love to windsurf. Okay, why are you applying to Denver? If your hobbies don't match that area location, then that doesn't necessarily make sense because you've got to be happy. You have to have a well balance. But if all of your hobbies or somewhere in a geographical area that's not close to here, you're probably not going to match us. Like, we wouldn't just rank you high. That's something that medical students have to understand. If you really want to be in an area, write on the personal statement why you want to be on there. If you have hobbies that you're including and they don't match that location, that's a red sign. We all know that you guys have hundreds of places that you're going to be applying to. Sometimes they can be a blanket personal statement to where you can apply to Alaska, down to Florida, down to New York, down to California, and you're not watching what you're saying. It doesn't look like you're tailoring it to the program, and that's a big flag. That makes a lot of sense. And it's something that you wouldn't necessarily think about because you're focused on, all right, what are my academic achievements? What are they going to think of while I'm in the hospital? And not necessarily, what are they going to think of when I'm outside of the hospital? What are my other connections to the location, to the state, to the environment, to social interaction. 
So I tell medical students, you know, it's a very big push in medicine right now, especially in ACGME, their accreditation, again, has standards for resident wellness. So programs are responsible for doing some initiative for wellness for the residents. So programs are going to look at that. What are you doing to stay healthy? What are you doing to maintain your balance? So again, you really got to look at your hobbies in the geographical area that you're applying to. It matters to the program director how you're taking care of yourself. You got to have an outside life and you got to have things to relax, things to be interested in. You have to have hobbies and passions. It matters. It also matters, again, just because they want to make sure that they get a guaranteed match. And if you don't have that connection to the location, they're probably going to rank somebody higher who does. I think that's great that this aspect is being taken into consideration. And I'm sure the you know, years of news and research now on physician burnout and showing that it happens even earlier in residency, during medical school, sometimes even earlier. These are definitely things we need to consider for the long-term health of the practitioner as well as you know the field in general to make sure we have enough practitioners in the field later on and we don't have a large number burning out. So that kind of key term of work-life balance, whether you like using that terminology or not, is important for the physician's well-being, for the resident, the student. Absolutely. And I understand that medical students, their aim is to spread a wide net, but you have to be happy where you're at. It's not just about getting a residency. It's about, can you see yourself in that environment for X amount of years of your specialty? You have to make sure you're happy. So maybe not cast such a wide net and really apply with purpose. Are you going to be happy in this location? Are you going to be happy in this city? Can you afford it? Do you have hobbies in that city that you can do when you're off work? Another thing we discussed in the past, and I think this is something a lot of students struggle with, is just getting the right clinical rotations, the right experiences for the specialty they're going into, because they might be limited at their school. They might not be able to necessarily receive the training in the specialty that they want without going through some sort of outside service. And besides how to go about doing that, there are particular do's and don'ts, basically, some best practices that we we're kind of discussing with contacting coordinators and how to go about that and demonstrating professionalism when doing so. Right. So one thing that I will say due to COVID, they are understanding that maybe you didn't get your rotation experience. So that's the one positive that's coming out of this situation. But of course, they do look at if you did take the rotation, what was your grade? Did you get an honors? If you're going for family medicine, did you get honors or did you get an A? I mean, if you have a C in that rotation, that's probably not very good. You might have to question, you might have to explain yourself in your personal statement of how you got such a low grade, what happened during that rotation. So transcripts are looked at. And it's not necessarily the GPA, it's really the grade of the rotation for that specialty. But you're right, maybe they didn't get a chance to do so, but they really want to be in that specialty. That's where they have to talk up to that specialty. Now, you're also asking about working with the coordinators. So working with the coordinators in residency is what matters. So however you treated the clerkship coordinator, that might be the same person. So I know I've had to work as the residency coordinator and the medical student clerkship coordinator. So if I worked with you to get your application in and you do a rotation, and now you're applying into my program and I'm looking at your errors and materials, I'm going to remember you. You have to make sure that you are always professional, always professional with that person that you're working with because you don't know how much power they really have. As a coordinator for residency, I would have first look 
at the ARIS application materials. My program director is telling me what the minimums are so I can filter onto ARIS and that could be test scores, that could be if you have all the letters of recommendation in, and that could be a lot of things. And now that I have weeded out the ones that aren't gonna be a good fit, I'm reading over everybody's application materials and I'm now deciding who's gonna be sent over to the program director. So if I see your name come up and I know you mistreated me, if you were rude to me, if you disrespected any type of instructions that were given to you, if you were difficult to work with, I don't think you're going to be a good fit for the program. And I'm probably not going to submit your information to the program director. So be very careful how you're treating the administrative staff. You don't know who really is going to have the power over your application. And we're all looking for good fits, not just clinically, but behaviorally. Do we really want to work with someone for four years or five years, however long that specialty is? You have to remember that this is a team and you're going to be stuck together. So you all have to work in this collaboration that's going to be you know, positive and for the benefit of one another. And if I've already gotten a first taste of you and it's been difficult, that's not the type of energy I want into my program. So think about how you're treating the clerkship coordinator. They could be the same person who's going to be looking at your application material. I should say many residency coordinators are also doing clerkship work as well. So you're going to have a good chance of working with the exact same person for both. That's a great point. And something we hear all the time brought up is you don't know who knows who, just be nice to everyone. It's common sense, but at the same time, like you said, you don't know the clerkship director is going to have input there or a friend that I have, the hospital that he works at, one of the nurses is married to one of the custodians there. So even that sort of interaction can get passed up the line and that nurse might be a good influence on someone for a future decision. If that applies to you, you were mean to someone who you threw something on the side of the trash can instead of in the trash can, <laughs> even something as mundane as that can really impact your total outcome. I always say that the medical world is very small. And it truly is because when you're in a specialty, you're going to have a working relationship with those other peers. You're going to be joining associations. You're going to be going to conferences. You build a network. So 10 years from now, you might want to be, you know, a program director, but you might have worked with someone five years ago who was like, oh, this person was atrocious. No. You know, now they're in charge of who's being interviewed and hired for that spot. And they might be remembering you and you weren't professional. So just remember, I know you're in med school, but residency, even though it's considered training, it's also a job. You are getting paid for this. This could be an opportunity for you to even get a position. When you graduate, you could stay where you're at, get a full-time fledged attending position. So just treat it as a job. Great point. One last question regarding that. And as social media is becoming more ingrained in even certain aspects of medicine, there are a lot of physician groups out there on Facebook and LinkedIn and other ways that physicians and other professionals are networking. So the interaction you have on social media and such can be important and long-lasting. One question I had regarding social media and your application in particular is, since you need to use a headshot for your application, you need to send in a photo as a candidate. It was brought to my attention anyway, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on this one way or another. It could just be completely academic discussing it, but what do you think about using the same image on all your social media and the same one that you use on your application in the thought that someone might have seen you on social media and recognize you and that would increase your chances. That is especially true for LinkedIn. 
what I will say is, you know, be careful what you're putting out there in social media. It will come back and bite you. So if you've got some negativity towards anything, especially in regards to medicine or, you know, I've seen medical students even talk about their professors in a negative way. <laughs> you know, you got to clean up your social media, everybody. But that's an excellent point. And yes, I definitely think that you should, especially when it concerns LinkedIn. If you're not on LinkedIn, make sure you get on it because program directors are on it. I was working with this one gentleman. He came from a different country and he was applying into residency. I'm like, your personal statement and your background is so unique. You should post that. You should post your mission. Like, this is your mission. The program directors who are already connected to you on LinkedIn can see that. They can be like, wow, you know, this guy has a lot of passion for his specialty. I'm going to remember him when I see his name in Eris. So it can benefit you. Just make sure it's mature. Whatever you're writing, whatever you're posting, make sure it's mature. You got to remember, everybody is a liability. Residents can be a liability. Doctors can be a liability to the hospital. And every entity has to protect themselves. So just make sure it's mature, it's professional, but it's an excellent idea to use the same photo. And please make sure it's a professional photo. You need a new headshot. Don't use an old photo and don't use a non-professional photo. We can definitely tell if you smashed out someone's face, you cut out around somebody, if this is you like on a vacation, it's not professional. Just keep in mind, this is a job. So get a professional headshot. Yeah. And you can do what I do, go on the cheap route and look up the nearest Groupon deal in your area. And to be honest, I went to FedEx. I had to get a passport and they do professional photo shots. Well, there you go. Good tips for not only how to apply, but how to apply affordably. <laughs> there you go. Well, Brenda, I think we've covered some really great material here, and I'd like to know where the audience can find out more about you and what you do in case they have more questions. Sure. So if they want to go on to my LinkedIn, they can absolutely go on to my LinkedIn. I do post a lot of materials for helping medical students get their you know applications looking really good. So if they want to do that, that's awesome. My name is Brenda Thompson. They can Google it, and it says GME Pundit as the heading. And I know the URLs are really long. So if you just Google Brenda Thompson, my name will come up and it will say Jamie Pundit. And I do have a special right now for $49 to help write that personal statement, pull out why you wanted to get into medicine, why the specialty. And then what we talked about, I have a PDF that kind of goes over a lot more in depth of what programs are looking for and how you can interview things that you should know about and things that you know, can help you at least get an interview. And if you do get an interview, how you can increase your chances to get highly ranked. So if you're interested in that, go ahead and DM me. They can also email me at gmepundent at gmail.com. Sounds great. And we will add those into the show notes for this episode as well. Brenda Thompson, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. The Rounds to Residency podcast is powered by Med School Coach. To access Med School Coach services, like USMLE tutoring or residency admissions advising, visit our website at medschoolcoach.com. Good luck as you prepare for your board exams, and we hope you tune in again next time.